There's a quote by Ayn Rand I'll read to you. She says, whenever destroyers appear among men, they start by destroying money. For money is men's protection and the base of a moral existence. And that's why value is not just monetary. Um, and why I always view value as time, talent, or treasure. It sounds to me like you're proposing that Bitcoin is the platonic form of money. Whatever's money is some some commodity of more or less fungible units that have a value because they're part of the monetary network. Exactly, because money is a representation of the value of our scarce time here on this earth. And it's a very good fundamental question to start with. You know, what is money? That obviously is the namesake of the show here. Because what you said is perfect. We decide what money is. Why would we decide a thing that they just say is money? I think I have found another answer to my favorite question. Money is an attention allocation technology. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. This is kind of a nebulous term. We use the word value a lot. We use it for you know morals and economics and all these different domains. How do you define value? Yeah, this is, well, this is, a, it's a very personal question. Um, and, uh, you know, some will say, well, that's just barter, and that may be true. Uh, but I think in order to understand value, you need to understand yourself first and, and your own time preferences, which is, and I, I don't always want to bring all in life back to Bitcoin, but I have noticed this really makes a difference in my life. Like, I can either do my daily cost average, you know, and buy $100 of Bitcoin or whatever, whatever my number is on a daily basis, uh, or I could go buy this thing. Um, and I think what every Bitcoiner notices is that it somehow just understanding it, seeing price action over time, understanding what you really have, then, you know, then you start to think like, oh, what is inflation really? And then you, you know, someone says, well, take a look at this chart and here's all the money that was created in the past two years. And then it's like, oh, okay. And so then you start to not buy shit. You start to, and when you start to not buy shit, it's like, why did I not buy that shit? Because I don't care about that shit as much as the other stuff I do or have. And then it's magical. You start to pay attention to other things and, and the world opens up. Uh, for some, uh, religion even comes uh, back mm -hmm. into their life. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, I may, you know, there's, I'm open to other things here. So it's a, um, 
So to determine value, once you understand what you find valuable, you're there. You know, so uh, that's what helps because now I'm like, well, not just is $100 worth this, uh, this widget that I want to buy, or is it really worth the time I'm going to spend fucking around with that widget? So this, that now, and of course, it's much easier when you're 57 to say, oh man, I don't have that much time left. What am I going to do with my time? Am I going to waste it on something? Or am I going to do something that I really enjoy doing or find productive or find fulfilling? So that's what, and, and that's why value is not just monetary. Um, and why I always view value as time, talent, or treasure, anything. And that's the same for a nonprofit, like anything you can give us in your time, volunteering in your talent, you know, which could be recruiting. It could be getting other people involved. It could be hosting benefits or your actual treasure, you know, and all of those are of equal importance. You've got to have all of them in your life. So uh, that doesn't really answer your question of how do you determine value other than you have to know yourself. There's a quote by Ayn Rand I'll read to you. She says, whenever destroyers appear among men, they start by destroying money for money is men's protection and the base of a moral existence. Mm. So this, another way that I've said this before is, you know, the integrity of civilization or the integrity of any of these little nation states, it's absolutely bound to the integrity of their money. If a country, you know, hyperinflates their currency, then what happens while they, they adopt someone else's money or they get taken over or whatever. So yes. there's this, uh, I, I think a, a connection here between goodness, unity being kind of absolute, right? Almost to the point where we're calling it, you know, in Pearl's language, God in a way, right? Whatever binds that hierarchy together. Yes. And the, the importance of, of money. And again, just Bitcoin here is like, it's the first money we've ever had that has an absolutely fixed supply. So there's another connection there between the absolute. It's like, yes. we've never made something that exhibits any absolute property at all, Yeah, but it could be, I don't, you know, the visualization I have is like, we're getting one layer deeper, one layer closer to the good, maybe in this, this money that can bind global civilization together in some absolute way. So maybe it's almost like a, um, a money that's closer to the platonic form of goodness and that it's absolute and unchangeable. And to get back to this phrase, right, it preserves and benefits rather than corrupts and dissolves. So it would at least be an argument that, yeah, what you just said, that uh, Bitcoin is a better kind of money because it, mo it, it most implements or better term realizes the goodness of money yes. and, um, and insofar as that argument is correct um and again uh, we, we we've talked about it a lot so i won't i'm not trying to bring that whole discussion up, up yeah. again I'm, I'm giving you i'm saying like it's it's a good proposal right insofar yes. as that yeah. argument is correct then what you what you, you you basically said is there is you know a moral obligation to move uh to change our currency in that way so if you think that uh, currency or money is a is a binder an integrator of civilization and then there is there are um instances of money that are closer to the platonic form as we have been talking about it here, then you have a moral argument as to why a, a, a change of currency should be made. Now I have one, this is a digressive question. I think we covered it before, um, which is, do you think that money is, I mean, well, money is obviously not necessary to civilizations because we had all the Bronze Age civilizations. Right, it's indispensable, money. not necessary. It's indispensable, not necessary. Do you think that, it, and, and, and I, I agree with that, do you think that indispensability is irremovable or is it possible that society or civilizations could be reorganized that we go not pre-money, I'm not saying that, but we go post-money? Is that, is that I, I, that's an open question. I don't, have any, I don't have any ideas one way or the other. I'm asking you what you think about that. Um, that would be, I mean, obviously a speculation because we've never... <laughs> seen that yeah, at all yeah, yeah yes the, the only i guess the only comment i could make that might be helpful is 
the same you could say the same question almost by saying are we ever going to get post scarcity post economic scarcity because right, so long right. as there's economic scarcity you're going to need you have to resolve disputes over scarce resources ultimately you can right. do that with contract or conflict right you can fight over it or you can have a contract yeah, yeah. which money is basically just a social contract yes yes all yeah. that along with the rule of law and all these other things property rights etc but if we ever invented you know i don't know like free energy or zero point energy or almost free energy that economic scarcity could go i don't think it ever goes away completely because you know the human want human heart has unlimited wants right you could yeah, give us everything right. imaginable and we probably still want more but you could take yeah. it to where it's almost non-existent and at that point money might just lose its relevance to a, a large extent because you just right. i don't know we'd have some I mean, it would be one heck of a breakthrough, though. I don't know what this would be like. Um, well, it's a Star Trek universe. I get it. Yes, right. yes. Basically that. Yeah. 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 All right. So could uh, we get post money? To- I would say, yeah. If we can, to the degree we can get post scarcity, we could get post money. Right, right. Okay. I, I just wanted yeah. to ask you that question. It's interesting yeah. what you had to say. I, no. We don't have to stick with digression. I just wondered. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's a good question. Um, fun to think about, but we got, we have a ways to go as they say. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and you know, you're always trying to check yourself. Like, am I just making connections where there aren't connections, but it yeah. seems like there's something here if it's the actual discovery of absolute scarcity and this, uh, this relationship that Plato keeps coming back to between the relative and the absolute. Well, I mean, and uh, I like the fact that you're willing for long periods of time. And I don't mean in any kind of forced fashion, you, you want to participate in discussing things other than Bitcoin in depth. Um, and for me, that's very important too, because it means you're actually trying to make deep connections as opposed to just trying to drag everything down to Bitcoin, if I can put it that way. Right. right? Yeah. I don't, I, I am, I am attempting to be as he, and I didn't know this until reading Plato, but actually be in pursuit of the truth. Right. I'm not trying to sell yeah, anyone yeah. Bitcoin here. I know it yeah. may seem that way at times. We talk about it a lot, but it's just, it's a fascination. You know, there's a lot of people captivated by this thing. Nobody understands the implications of it. And we're just all trying to figure it out. Well, I mean, if, if, if you'll allow me, you're, you're proposing something and you're making it plausible rather than preposterous. You're, you're, if you're, it sounds to me like you're proposing that Bitcoin is the platonic form of money, which is a really interesting ontological claim to make when i saw the mathematical representation of the strange attractor it was like looking at the realm of the forms you know yes yes and when i look at the bitcoin blockchain and its perfect supply curve like it just does its own thing know what nobody can change it it just does what it's i'm like okay am i looking at forms here like it's it's something that how do I say it's something that is just independent of us, I guess, kind of like the sun, right? It just it's it has its own sovereignty. Yes. Well, I mean, if currency is the information flow of a dynamical system, presumably there are attractors within it pointing to constraints, enabling and selective constraints, and that that might mean that there is something. Yeah, in the way we've been talking about it, platonic about how we should understand currency. I've never put those two together. The platonic tradition has a long tradition of you know considering currency filthy lucre, right? It's you know the the people in, in, engaged in money are just motivated by sort of their appetites and their passions, um, and, and, and 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 so Plato does not uh, address this. But what you're trying to do is move it off that and you're trying to understand the fundamental principles um, at work and what is the form of money i mean that's it's almost like you're changing the question that's the title of your show in a really (laughs) profound and interesting way well uh only here in the courtyard of d logos would that question be changed (laughs) because i did not reach it on my own just like goods don't have an intrinsic value 
right? Which is the another problem with a, a lot of monetary theory. They, they, they say, oh, Bitcoin doesn't have intrinsic value, unlike gold. Well, gold doesn't have intrinsic – nothing has intrinsic value. What, right. what they're trying to say in Bitcoin is that Bitcoin doesn't have a non-monetary use value, which is true, but it's irrelevant. It doesn't need to have a non-monetary use value. But um, <coughs> um, but you know, Peter Schiff and these guys, they talk, they talk about intrinsic value. And they, so, and they use that to say that, oh, gold is backed by something unlike Bitcoin. And you know, my response to that would be nothing, no money is ever backed by anything because money, whatever, whatever commodity in society, whether it's a a digital commodity like Bitcoin um, or um, or a real commodity, or a physical commodity like gold, or even a fiat money like the dollar, whatever's money is some some commodity of more or less fungible units that have a value because they're part of the monetary network, right? In other words, they have a value because they're money. Right. And that value is always, if, it, if, it's a, if it's a commodity like gold, that value is always uh, uh, far and above the underlying non-monetary non use value of the commodity. So I don't know what the numbers are, but if gold was the world's money and there was no fiat monies and it was just gold, um, gold had gold had some kind of ornamental value in barter days and then it became money for obvious reasons its value is now much greater than it used to be because it's useful in trade right it's because it, it's money yes yeah so let's say 90% 95% and 98% of the value of gold is because it's money so if if it got supplanted by you know copper or diamonds or bitcoin one day and collapsed and stopped being used as, as gold it would lose 90% of its value but it would just revert to its non-monetary use value so if you had all your wealth in gold, you would lose most of it if it stopped being used as money. It, so it's not backed by anything. And the dollar is not backed by anything. It's backed by the FDIC insurance promise, but that can only be fulfilled in the extremes by the government just printing more money, which would just lower the purchasing power. So this is, it's, it's literally impossible to guarantee or to have a backing of any money. In my, in, this is my opinion. We really need to get the government out of the money business because it's not, it's not about protecting life, liberty, or property. People should be free to select whatever money they want to use, just like they can select whatever television or laptop or any other, any other technology that they want to use. So I know you're an advocate for the separation of money and state. How do you intend on taking that dialogue into the sphere of the Senate? I think the, the, the answer is probably the same way that I talk to people about Bitcoin. A lot of people ask me, you know, what, what do you say about Bitcoin? How do you educate people about Bitcoin? And I always start with what is money first, because that's to me way, way more important. There's a lot of cool things about the technology and stuff about Bitcoin, but I consider those sort of like chapter two, you know, chapter one is like, what is money? And, and, you know, why do we care about it? What makes good money, good money? And, and then I, you know, so I talk about the properties of money and particularly the limited supply. I think that's probably one of the most important features and a differentiator between Bitcoin and fiat. And the fact that Bitcoin's limited to 21 million and fiat is sort of unlimited forever, that's a big deal. And then there's the other properties, you know, how, how, you know, how scarce it is, is one, but also how portable, how durable, uh, how widely accepted, uh, how divisible, you know, these are things that are good properties of money. And I tell people, you know, you can Google properties of money. I first heard of it from Charlie Lee, like, uh, you know, like probably first speech I ever heard. I think it might've been even announcing Litecoin or like right after Litecoin or something like that. And he was talking about that. And he just kind of mentioned like, oh yeah, these properties of money have been around for a long, long time, long before Bitcoin. And, um, so the you know the properties make sense and bitcoin stacks up quite well and fiat stacks up quite poorly this idea that you can just print something from thin air and it's a very good fundamental question to start with you know what is money is it a thing that politicians can just print because what you said is perfect we decide what money is why would we decide a thing that they just say is money right. if you really think about it, if you zoom out a little bit it's like well that that's very very similar to an ico with a premine like a, like a, mm -hmm. like a, like a premine you, you know, like a, like a low grade, uh, 2017, uh, vintage ICO, you know, like, Hey, here's a thing. W me and my buddies get a bunch of it and we're selling it to the, to the public right now. Um, it, and I've always been, you know, kind of, uh, like, like, uh, more friendly to these kind of projects. I just, I just, I don't, I don't usually use the word scam. I say very bad economics. So something like that, I just consider it very bad economics. Um, 
and I'm still for it. You know, I'm in favor of everybody being able to sell anything, even junk, even, you know, scams if they tell the truth, if they, if they say, hey, this is where the money's going. Um, and there's been a couple couple like that. I mean, there's a couple projects that were like blatantly brazen. Like, yes, we are going to take this pre-mine and the founders get it and it goes into their pocket. It's like, okay. I mean, they're not lying. You know, I'm right. going to buy a Lambo. Here's the Lambo I bought. Like, all right. You know, I, I wouldn't do it. But I'm all in favor of everybody of everybody else doing it. But the but the but the dollar is is very very similar. It's the same kind of scammy behavior. Very very low quality economics, and people should have the choice. They should say, you know, I'm going to choose the dollar, or I'm going to choose X, or I'm going to choose some ERC twenty token, or you know, whatever thing they want. You know, whatever crazy thing they want to do. Um, that's, that's their, their problem. But now you have people actually looking and saying, you know, what, what is the reality in, in, in the world? And there are real principles of this and properties and, and, you know, these, these junky coins, like the dollar, they just don't stack up. Um, so I would start with that. And then, you know, the crazy thing is if I get down there, I think that we're going to face such dire economic times over the next six years that, um, Anything is possible. I mean, we may have no choice. You know, I joke that even Elizabeth Warren may end up voting with me, but that's unfortunately, I think, a possibility because I think things are going to get so bad that they're going to have no choice. I mean, we could be in a situation in a couple of years where everything is just completely falling apart. And, and then, you know, we have to make radical cuts and change things around. You know, all it takes is, you know, I mean, things go this way until they don't. I mean, you could have one major bill you know, in 2027 or something that's like, okay, this bill eliminates these 30 departments and stops the Fed from printing money. And the US dollar is now one of several currencies, including Bitcoin that we use. You could have one bill that does that. I mean, they've done, there's been crazy bills in history many, many, many times. And it tends to happen exactly times like this when the world gets crazy and the whole, everything falls apart. Um, you know, so who knows what can happen, but anything is possible. Yeah, it's, it's, exciting as exciting as it is terrifying almost because the the spectrum of possibilities is wide open now um and i love that you know you're to the properties of money because that obviously is the namesake of the show here and i think once you grasp the properties of good money you understand why gold became money you understand why bitcoin is an order or orders of magnitude better and that's the light bulb moment now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, the Gold Investment Letter. The Gold Investment Letter helps sophisticated investors navigate capital markets and maximize their profits in trading gold, silver, and mining stocks. The Gold Investment Letter seeks out the most undervalued companies and identifies special situations in the mining sector, and then provides in-depth analysis on both their financial positions and future prospects. The Gold Investment Letter explores many complex domains, such as investor psychology, portfolio management, and macroeconomic trends, all with the goal of making you a better investor. The Gold Investment Letter offers a free version and a paid premium version, and I strongly recommend you at least sign up for the free version because after having read a few of these issues, I can promise you it is a treasure trove of good information. You can sign up for the free newsletter today at goldinvestmentletter.com. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touch screen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res three-inch touch screen. It's got a camera for air gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code Bitcoin23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. First of all, when you say trust minimization to people, like that's very counterintuitive. People and it, he, like it for great minds, there's like Jordan Peterson. He often talks about this book he read. I don't know which book it is, but he says 
the book makes the case that trust is the ultimate natural resource. So that yeah. you would you would think we'd want to increase the trust in the world. How do we do that? Well, trust minimization doesn't sound like the right way to do that. But there's some paradoxical thing here. It's like the, the I like to think about it as again cost effectiveness. Instead of saying we're minimizing trust, you're actually minimizing the the cost necessary to establish trust in terms of time, energy, engagement. And so obviously if you lower the unit cost of establishing trust, then you increase the total output of trust or the total production of trust, something like that. Exactly. Because money is a representation of the value of our scarce time here on this earth. And if it's a good money, it's a, it's a good representation of it. And Bitcoin is a perfect representation of it because it's as finite as our time on this earth. And it's the first, that's a, that's a first for humanity. So, so it's the first time we had a perfect representation of what we truly are, uh, finite beings, uh, uh, a small link in a long chain of uh, generations. Um, and how, how it, when you've been in, um, I, I don't know if you've ever been, but if you've ever been in a life-threatening situation where, where you thought you were going to die, uh, or that there was a great probability that uh, a high probability that you would die, you you, you tend to reevaluate reevaluate your life after that, uh, and you start to value your your time more because you you get a reminder that it's limited. Uh, everyone dies, so uh, and like I said, P Bitcoin is a perfect representation of that. So. Um, it's a bit of a stretch that that enables us to, to trust each other more. But I really think it does because when, when you have corrupt money that does not accurately represent that, then you, you engage in voluntary interactions with each other. A voluntary action and a transaction are, are the same thing. Uh, um, as long as the money is, is fair and, uh, uh, and you can trust it. So, but but when you can't trust the money and the voluntary interaction uh, gets gets um, corrupted by this third party leaching value from it, then that that's what creates the mistrust we have in each other. So so I think what Bitcoin is doing is connecting humanity into this singular unit, so that we. we our tribal instincts and Dunbar's number and all of that, we can finally, we can extend that tribe without sacrificing our own, uh, our own uh, integrity and our own um, individuality. It's the first time we've had a system that is actually able to coordinate all human beings instead of just the human beings in a specific tribe or religion or nation or whatever group. You know, Bitcoin, I guess, is kind of circumventing trust in a way by saying, you know, well, again, it's always captured in that phrase, don't trust verify, but the system itself saying here's universally transparent, verifiable mathematics, essentially, right? So you just have full, instead of putting your full faith and what is it, full faith and credit of the U.S. government, I think is on the, the dollar yeah. bill. We're putting our also full faith. in God we trust. In God we trust. <laughs> That's also on the dollar bill. <laughs> they're trying to piggyback and hijack. <laughs> yeah, tr trust in God. Instead, we trust can in God and the Fed. <laughs> instead, yeah. we can place full faith and credit in mathematics, which I don't think there's much argument about that being a bad idea. Like it's the most no, it's the highest. Highest resolution language for reality we have. I think, um, was yeah. it Galileo? The, the, the good language of the universe, something like that. So, yeah, so it's not really faith. It, oh, it's, it's, uh, it's, well, it is faith though, because probabilistic uh, risk, like it's, it's an, it's an accurate risk taking, uh, like, uh, it, it is very likely to be true. <laughs> Most uh, likely to be true, but yeah. still any it's, system of knowledge is going to be built on top of 
axioms and ultimately yeah. you have faith in those axioms, right? Even in Austrian economics, man yeah. must act. We don't yeah, know how yeah, to refute exactly. it. We don't know how to think our way out of it. It seems pretty reliable, but ultimately, ultimately you're having faith in an axiom. I think that's as true of any system of knowledge. I know you don't like yeah, the word faith. I know you don't like the no. word faith, but <laughs> I don't think you can avoid it either. No. Uh, okay. I can, I can, I can buy that. I, okay. I would say that uh, I'd use the word, uh, 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 an accurate assumption. Uh, Fair enough. Future is shorter, I'll stick with that one. Um, <laughs> trust. This is semantics. Yeah. Semantics. So we get a system that circumvents trust by letting us place faith in mathematics. Other things too, thermodynamics, Darwinian self-preservation, these are all kind of components of the Bitcoin network. Yeah. Um, but trust seems to be, if I'm trying to dissect that a little bit, isn't it rooted in the belief of ongoing consensual interaction or transaction? Like if I trust someone a lot, like I trust my friend, someone I've known for years and years and years, I just have a belief that he's only going to do things that are, he won't do anything to harm me, right? If I turn my back to give him a plate of food, he's not going to punch me in the head and take my food kind of thing. Yeah. So this, there's something about consent very closely related to this trust too. I guess by Bitcoin removing the option largely for non-consensual interactions or transactions that you've just... You've left no other options, right? So it's like you're, it's much no. more likely people will behave and engage with you consensually, because the options for non-consensual exchange are largely removed. In the case like you can't inflate Bitcoin, you can't confiscate it very easily. Um, you could also say just disincentivized, where sure you could try to come steal someone's Bitcoin, but if they've custodied it properly, there's not a big carrot to that enterprise. When I say care, no, I mean incentive and, to that enterprise. And you can't know how many bitcoins they have, right? So, so, so the, the uh, a, a violent actor is always disincentivized to take the violent action rather than to provide something of value back, because you can never know how much how much you could have gotten out of this person by being nice to them instead. And even uh, if you did somehow know that they had a shitload of Bitcoin, the probability that you're going to get it is very, very low. So when you're actually doing this, like, you know, weighted average, what is it called? Uh, expected value calculation. Yeah. Where you're looking at the probability and the payoff and you're, you're trying to figure it out. The probability shrinks tremendously. So this is why I think we always, we often talk about in Bitcoin, the, the profitability of coercion or violence, like Bitcoin lowers the profitability of of violence. And so if you make violence less profitable, so. it's somewhat intuitive that we would all be more trusting. Well, when you can't take something by force and, and you can't even know how much it is, there's just no other way of extra extracting value from, from the other man or woman well, uh, than, than providing something of value back. Back to a point you, you made before about everyone becoming wealthier and this is also hard for for Keynesians to 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 grasp that uh, every boat rises with the tide, and that uh, in a functioning economy with sound money, everyone actually does get wealthier. Everyone who does anything gets wealthier uh, than they used to be. And the more wealth you acquire, like we said before, the the more altruistic you, you can you can be. And that's also you can afford. Uh, to lose money, uh, you you can afford to uh, you can afford a lot more things, so you can afford to be nicer to people. And it's not it's not a coincidence that poorer areas of the world are often more crime ridden than wealthier ones. Uh, so of course it's better for everyone if everyone has an an ability to get richer. That's that's just very natural and. All of these movies and, and children's stories that tell you about the big bad capitalist in some, you know, Uncle Scrooge in his big pile of cash uh, being the bad guy, that, that is not really true. I mean, uh, in, in, a, in a fair economy, the wealthiest man is the man who pr provides most value to, to, his, fellow, to his fellow human beings. 
That's, who save them the most time. Exactly, which is which is should be the same thing, because money is time. <laughs> that's that's it. It should be time. Bitcoin is time. Yeah, it's um, it's really interesting. So I, you know, on this particular point, I'm blown away, frankly, that it's not more adequately discussed, because I don't see any path to the process of civilization, like ongoing civilization. Other than wealth accumulation, like you have to accumulate more wealth to get, like you just said, richer yeah. societies tend to be more peaceful. Poor societies tend to be more contentious. Why? Well, because there's a lot more economic scarcity in a poor society. People are fighting for scraps. They're short term, right? There, you could almost say that. Fear. Yeah. Yeah. Aggregate wealth accumulation is correlated closely with aggregate time preference right exactly. so the more wealth we have the lower our time preference yeah and, and so but that's not talked about almost by anyone except bitcoiners and it really blows my mind it's like why, why are we talking about all these fundamental issues like this very practical obvious approach is like just create more stuff because <laughs> stuff satisfies wants I wouldn't and say unsat stuff. unsatisfied create, wants. I typically create say more that, time saving. <laughs> yeah, capital. Uh, yeah. Capital, right? Yeah. And unsatisfied wants are what create the contention within a society. So you can very easily relieve the contention by just creating more capital per unit of time. Exactly. And uh, this uh, I think you you this ties into the 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 first chapter of my my uh, latest book, the uh, the time chapter. Uh, which is quite inspired by Monsieur Mah what's his name, Monsieur Mahmoudov's book. The, mm -hmm. This book will save you time if you read mm -hmm. that. Also about yep. Bitcoin, uh, and how every every tool and every technology ever invented by man uh, was invented to save someone time somewhere. So a screwdriver uh, saves you time, uh, and uh, you know, an electric sc screwdriver saves you even more time. And you can do that with everything. And uh, the argument I make in the book is like even an Armani suit or a Gucci bag is trying to save someone time somewhere because the one wearing the bag is probably trying to virtue signal to other people in the group in order to get a better job and to get a higher pay and therefore being able to, to free up time by, by spending money. So, but what people miss is like, what they really want is what money can buy them. And um, what that is, is ultimately uh, a reclamation of the driver's seat of your life so you can decide over your own time. That's what everyone really wants. <laughs> uh, uh, but most people don't see that their actions are actually hindering them from, from getting exactly that. So they stay in these... Uh, in these jobs with fancy titles and a monthly paycheck and they take a huge mortgage and buy a huge car and a huge house and they spend all their lives paying off their debt and never never having any time to contemplate what life is really about and that's the saddest part of the, of the fiat shit show because it turns everyone into this uh, lab rat if you want uh, and this is this is partly why I wrote this article because I think the 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 other side of that bridge that B Bitcoin provides is so different, uh, and so uh, I imagine a world where almost everyone affords can afford almost everything, uh, <laughs> because the the economy is so well oiled and the costs of production and transportation of basically every consumer good in the world has gone to zero. <laughs> especially in Bitcoin terms. So everyone has access to this abundance of stuff, but, but everyone's psyche is changed from consumerism to uh, something my grandfather said, which is a, a brilliant quote that has been, you know, bothering me for the last 40 years when my dad told me, I never met my grandfather, but my, my dad told me that his father told him that you can do which that which you can do without you own and there is so much to unpack in that quote so i've been thinking about it for 40 years 
that which you can do without your own. And when you realize that, you, you realize that you don't need all this material bullshit. You can just own it anyway by not needing it. And it ties into so much. Like if I get a parking ticket, uh, I, I used to get angry when I got a parking ticket or, or a speeding ticket or anything thing, or something like that. I don't think I ever had a speeding ticket. Well, I did in Germany, but that doesn't count. Uh, <laughs> but the, 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 the gut reaction is to be angry at the ticket or angry at what just happened to you. Oh, shit, I have to pay this. And then you go around frustrated. But then you're paying the double price for the parking ticket because it's already costing you money. But now you're letting it cost you time in form of uh, in the form of like your anger and your energy being focused on this bullshit when you could just pay the goddamn thing and forget about it and go on with your life. So so I try I constantly try to be more like that to to not care about stuff that I cannot uh, do anything about or or stuff that is pointless for me to try to do anything about when I could focus on something something bigger and something more important instead um, and I, I think that Bitcoin can actually make people become more like that over time uh, of course it won't lead to a utopia or anything like that I don't believe we will get to a perfect world or that there's an end point somewhere but that's not the point as long as the vectors are pointing in that direction we lead humanity into a, a a friendlier more loving more trust more trusting place that that's always a good thing um and yeah that which you can do without your own i think more people should take that to heart and, and try to live that way that's a really good one um it's funny how some of the wisdom we receive from our parents or grandparents just keeps paying dividends over time. Right. Uh, yeah. The one I like that one a lot. I'd never heard that one before that, which you can do without you own. That's really interesting. It reminded yeah. me of one. My mom used to share. Uh, I grew up in Tennessee. So this is, I guess, redneck wisdom, if you will. Uh, she used to say stuff doesn't matter. People do. Yeah. And um, simple as that, you know, stuff that doesn't matter ultimately, like it's, it's a means to an end, but typically the, the ultimate ends for people are typically people, right? With some type of relationship or loving relationship with your family or your significant other or whatever it may be. Um, and it makes sense to me that again, if we have a sound money savings option, that it's just going to lead to less consumerist mentality because you're again you're just engaging especially with something like bitcoin like you're engaging with something i don't want to i want to use the word eternal but damn near everlasting for um at least in the scope of socioeconomics so you your time horizon becomes aligned with its time horizon and all of a sudden you know the the gucci bag and trying to scurry up this little superficial social hierarchy maybe doesn't matter so much um, no uh, and that that quote that like stuff doesn't matter people do it's it's a hint at what, what we ultimately want with all of our actions and that is love we want to be loved by other people we we, we crave <laughs> I, I mean some of us crave more attention than others mm -hmm. but 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 even that all of it is just uh, a longing for love um and the the i believe that the best way to get there is to to rid yourself of your ego and of your uh, of your uh, desire for for uh, you know cheap dopamine hits <laughs> uh, right and like a, a search for a deeper truth somewhere and um, i i think bitcoin provides a, a perfect lens and damn near perfect lens for us to to to, to see see the world through and see through all the bullshit. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. 
Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. You know, when people say Bitcoin... Um Unlike gold, Bitcoin doesn't have any intrinsic value and there's nothing backing up your money. It's like, well, first of all, there's nothing backing up any money because even if gold is money, it's got a monetary premium, probably 10 times the the, the non-monetary value of the gold. So if if whatever you're using as money stops being used as money, you're going to lose nine, you know, 90% of your savings anyway. Right. Uh, so there, it's, it's literally impossible to have a money – that is backed by anything because whatever's money is always going to have a monetary premium and that monetary premium could evaporate if it stops being used as money. Um, but anything that does have a, a non-monetary use is imperfect as money because – I mean it still might be better than having no money. Like right. having gold even though it's imperfect is better than having a barter society obviously. Yes. But it'd be the ideal money would be one that has no non-monetary use because when you have gold, then you're wasting resources – getting gold just for monetary use you're diverting the the ornamental and the um, industrial uses of gold into money um right and uh, also it causes i think when there's a, when the new new gold is mined it leads to a redistribution of wealth and it leads to inflation price inflation yeah. relative price inflation um now that's a small cost small price is worth paying to have to avoid a barter system but if we can have one that doesn't have that, which is what Bitcoin is, then that's why it's even better in, in my in my view. Yeah, agreed. I've often called Bitcoin the first pure money, right? Everything Correct. else has been impure to the extent that it's used for industrial or ornamental purposes. Yeah, it's a hundred percent monetary premium instead yes. of ninety percent monetary premium. Exactly. Again, to echo a couple of things you said there, we have this asset that is pure equity right or a bearer asset but simultaneously globally transactable right so it's it's all money and no promise and as you said you know your experience in banking like you're you're shuffling promises around right you're ultimately trying to get the gold or or the least um counterparty risk laden asset in your treasury but you're trying to create alpha too by you know, playing in all these high counterparty risk or high liquidity risk assets. And I guess to put maybe some icing on that cake, the other thing is that you know, you're only going to get this once, right? You can only have money with a fixed supply one time with a credibly fixed supply. Now we can go and launch, you know, Robert and Oswaldo coin right now and say it has a fixed supply, but that's counterparty risk, right? You have to believe us that we're not going to print more of the thing. So this whole, this only happens once game. Theoretically, you get one time, one money with a, an absolutely fixed supply and it's never going to happen again. But as you, to your point, the profundity of that idea takes some time to permeate people's consciousness. And I think you're right when you say that the people that are intimately familiar with the inner workings of these financial systems are going to get it first. Um, and you sort of already see that, right? Like you alluded to Sailor earlier, he's an engineer, but he's also been a you know public executive for, I don't know, 30 years or whatever it is. So it's those types of people that are going to get it first. 
To better understand the nature of attention, I want to do something that I typically like to do, which is ask a very straightforward question. What is attention? I want to argue today that attention is the essence of all human action. There is nothing in this world that gets done without being attended to by someone, at least someone. And in fact, we accomplish greater things when they are attended to by many people over time. This is the nature of collaboration. In economics, we call this the division of labor. And the essence of the division of labor is found in the old adage, many hands make light work. It could be extrapolated further across time by saying that many minds actually make light work. So we get smarter, better, and more effective at satisfying wants by working together than we do apart. And this is essentially what an economy is. It's a system for allocating attention in accordance with the desires humans want satisfied. Again, this is pretty obvious. If you just reflect on where most people spend their lives paying most attention, which for most of us is work, right? You spend most of your week, most of your month, most of your life engaged in work. And when you go to work, you're essentially trading your attention, solving whatever problem it is you do in your craft and your, your niche for money. And then that money is used to go out and buy the attention of others later. And what I mean by that specifically is that there is no product or service in the world that does not include the essential ingredient of human attention. The only things that get done are attended to, again. So another way to look at attention, another critical aspect, is that human attention is always comprised of time and energy. We understand this if we just consider the way we talk about attention. When we quote-unquote pay attention, it involves us spending our time and energy engaging our perceptual faculties on someone or something. Or when we seek attention, we desire that payment from others, that time and energy from others we want focused on ourselves. And this is why I think many women dress themselves like ripe fruit when they go out at night. They're seeking attention. It's also why many men buy flashy cars, flashy watches, all of these things. They're seeking attention. And the next point I'd like to make about attention is that it's always, and again, these are formative thoughts. So I hope you guys are, this is getting the juices flowing. Maybe you can ask me some questions about it. I think attention is always directed at either desire or satisfaction. Directed by, rather, let me say. It's either directed by desire or by satisfaction. What do I mean by that? Attention moves toward desire. So desire, for instance, can cause a beautiful woman to get a man's attention as she walks by. Desire can also cause a hot meal to get a hungry person's attention, maybe if they smell it or see it. On the other hand... Attention moves away from satisfaction. If a happily married man is sitting there and the beautiful woman walks by, he might not give her quite so much attention, assuming he's actually happily married and therefore satisfied. Similarly, a person with a hot, I'm sorry, a person with a full belly might not give the hot meal quite so much attention because a full belly is by definition satisfied. So, humans, we are social animals. We live in constant exchange of attention with one another. That's what even this event here is today, right? We gather in one place, you give me your attention, hopefully I give you some value back in return. And this is why, again, we understand this, solitary confinement is one of the most torturous human experiences imaginable Precisely because you are starving of attention. You are starving of all human interaction. And it's also the reason why, if you are popular in high school, or you're popular in college, or maybe you are an actual celebrity, that you can ride high on those waves of attention. It gives you energy, right? It, it, it magnifies you in some way. Okay, 
I promise this is going to get tied back to money and economics. So to say it again, we all allocate our attention according to desire and satisfaction. And this realization is something I think we can map directly onto economics. So when I say the word economics, probably the first terms that pop in your mind are supply and demand, as we all learned. But few of you likely realize that supply and demand can equally be called satisfaction and desire. Economic supply is the attention of some people allocated toward the creation of capital, necessary to satisfy the demands of other people. This is the hot meal, right, that can satisfy a hungry belly. That is supply. That is capital. Economic demand, on the other hand, is the intensity of desire which demands satisfaction. This would be the hungry belly that desires the hot meal. That is economic demand or that is desire itself. So in other words, we could say, to get a little more economic in our vernacular, producers create supply that satisfies demand and consumers demand supplies of capital that can satisfy their desires. This is the market. This is the market process. Trading attention to satisfy our desires. That's what we're doing. And the interplay of satisfaction and desire is the market process. It's the same thing. And again, Economics 101, supply meets demand. What do we find? The price. At the nexus of supply or satisfaction and demand or desire, we discover the price. The price is a communication signal that commands perhaps more attention than anything else in the world. It coordinates and dictates the movements of the entire market process that we're all always engaged in. Now, a price is not necessarily the dollar price. That's what we always think in, but we have to get a layer deeper. Prices are ratios of exchange between any two assets. The numerator, the top number, and the denominator, the bottom number. Now the numerator, which is the top number, is what you're evaluating. The denominator, the bottom number, is your chosen frame of reference. You can price anything and anything. Price is completely arbitrary. You might ask, how many apples does an orange cost? Or how many tables does a chair cost? You could say this about any combination of assets. But pricing in that way is a real pain in the ass, obviously. So what do we do? We abstract all of these prices into money. Money makes pricing less painful. And by denominating prices in money, money being just the most liquid, tradable asset in an economy, all of those exchange ratios, that infinite complexity is compressed down to a single number, a single common denominator or a common frame of reference that we call money, the money express price. So by using money, we can all effectively speak a common language of economic numeracy such that we can all allocate our attention more effectively. We don't need to spend our attention uh, digging through all of these exchange ratios. We can just focus on the price and base our actions on it. So in other words, the money expressed price is the focal point for the allocation of attention across civilization, across the world economy. Prices are telling producers what to produce and consumers how much to consume versus save. It is the communication mechanism. And this is why money and attention go hand in hand. Money is used to allocate attention via the price in this way. And since we look at most of the world through money, it is one of our most fundamental frames of reference or denominators. Just stop and consider how many times you think in dollars every day. It's, if you actually observe yourself doing this, I think you'll be quite blown away. So a pricing system which is denominated in money is the way we allocate our attention toward the desires 
that most ardently seek satisfaction. Like Svetsky was just talking about, right? When you vote with buying, when you buy something, you're signaling to the economy to make more of it. When you sell it, you're signaling to the economy to make less of it. And as Bitcoin has shown the world, price and attention are very closely connected. Where high prices go, attention flows. And in this sense, I think I have found another answer to my favorite question. What is money? Money is an attention allocation technology. That's it. So money as a tool is one that allows us to accomplish more trade with one another with the same allocation of attention. Again, we don't need to work through all these exchange ratios. We denominate the price in money. It's very simple, very clear how much we should produce as a producer or consume as a consumer. And when we save attention through the use of tools like money, we then get that allocation of attention back, right? We, we, don't, we don't need to allocate as much attention to the solution or satisfaction of the problem. So we get attention back that we can then allocate for the satisfaction or supply of other desires or demands. I do think that uh, there is a big case to be made for, um, can we just simply um, liberate hundreds of millions of people uh, from dysfunctional, um, what do you call it, from dysfunctional financial institution? Yes, then- yeah. From the fiat currency complex, right? The central yes. banking system. I. I feel your energy on that. And I've tried, you know, I wrote this piece a while ago and I'll share it with you when we get off here titled masters and slaves of money. And I actually opened with a little bit of history of, uh, money in Africa where, you know, Africans use glass beads as currency for a long time. And that's back when they sort of just naturally adopted free market principles as people tend to do when left alone. And it was, when Europeans arrived, I think this was in the 16th century, and they saw that these glass beads are being used as currency and realized that, hey, we have really sophisticated glass making tech back in Europe, so we can counterfeit these beads at scale, basically. And so that was a mechanism that was used by Europeans to confiscate and usurp African wealth. So this is one angle, like there's a lot of angles on money and property and what supports the free market, but if you could just understand that, not you, but if people could understand that counterfeiting currency is used as a mechanism to steal wealth, then perhaps that would properly frame the value proposition of a money that cannot be counterfeited like Bitcoin. That's essentially what it is, right? It's uninflatable, which is to say it's uncounterfeitable. That's right. And so how, how much could we have avoided in that little vignette, it led to the middle passage, the transatlantic slave trade, all of these horrible things started with that counterfeiting of currency. So if we could understand, it's not about demonizing like this group of people or that group of people. It's what are the incentives that these groups of people are inhabiting? Because the incentives determine the outcome. So if we can shift people out of a system where currency is counterfeited at scale, like we're living in today, right? That's what the central bank is doing. It's just a legalized currency counterfeiting operation and shift to a world that that's just not an option. It's not an option to take anymore. You can't steal from people by printing money that we could prevent the horrific sagas like we saw in the transatlantic slave trade and maybe not prevent. I'm not trying to be an absolutist utopian here, but man, you could take a lot of wind out of the cells of something like that. And go closer, go closer. Vietnam War, Afghan War. I don't. I. I really believe that none of them would have lasted as long as they lasted Absolutely. if we had to rely on real money. Real money, yes. right? It's here. All of a sudden, like, oh, gee, oh, I don't. I don't have any money, so I'm going to have to find a way to fold this war uh, or to, you know, get out of it. With, uh, w- but we would not have stayed in this. So this is why sometimes for me, when people are like, well, Bitcoin and the energy use and this is immoral. I'm like, which one is more immoral? this um energy use that by the way is not so high right. or or war how do you feel compared to wars and people being killed over, how, i mean really can we go there for a second uh, of course you know? it, and, 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 that exact point 
I love to to zero in on this because I think first of all, World War One, World War Two, both fiat currency increased the scale and duration of those conflicts, right? Without counterfeiting money, they would not have lasted as long or been as destructive. But even more recently, if we look at the US war on terror, which is not really a war, it's just an imperialistic campaign. I think the numbers came out to $80,000 per US household is how much it costs to fund the 20-year-ish war on terror. Now, how big of a difference would it have, have been if that money could not have been printed and instead each US household was presented with a bill for $80,000 saying, hey, we're blowing people up on the other side of the planet. Your, your share of the bill is $80,000. You know, please send the check by April fifteenth. Like people would go crazy. They would resist. They would push back. There would be all of all of this uh, resistance, frankly. But instead, if you can just print the currency, inflate the prices of goods and services, and then what do they do now? We blame inflation on Putin. We blame inflation on the gas station. We blame inflation on the capitalist. And it's just the state uh, constantly obfuscating economic reality to perpetrate these horrible things over and over and over again. And so that's why I'm so, I mean, and I'm glad you're passionate about it and there's people like you out there doing this, but it's just a matter of education. It's like just understanding what this technology money is and how it actually works and how the game is actually being played can lead you to this awakening of like, oh, well, maybe I do need money that can't be counterfeited. And there's only one option and that's Bitcoin. So Bitcoin's a big deal. (laughs) 